Nintendo version of the Spider-Man theme song. This is episode 344 for December 2014. This episode is sponsored by Thwip Studios. They're a fan-made YouTube channel dedicated to adapting Spider-Man comics for the fans. You can see Spidey as you've never seen him before brought to life straight from the comic and they have motion comic animations and professional voice acting in these YouTube videos. They have adapted fan-favorite stories like Craven's Last Hunt, Marvel Night Spider-Man, and this month they have the fan favorite, When Cometh the Commuter, featuring the Douglas family, myself included, my daughter and my wife. And also the original Spider-Man 2099 saga is coming up, and many, many more. Every two weeks, a new episode is posted, so they would love for you to come over to and subscribe to their channel and celebrate the best Marvel character ever created with these animations. And their URL is youtube.com slash user slash thwip studio. Let me say it again. YouTube.com slash users slash Thwip Studios. And you spelled Thwip, T-H-W-I-P-S-T-U-D-I-O-S. YouTube.com slash user, T-H-W-I-P-S-T-U-D-I-O-S. They're great. As a Spider-Man fan, I think you'll love them. All right, let's get on with the show. All right, time for Spider History in December. We've got uh, three issues that came out this month. Jer, we're going to start with the flagship first, Amazing Spider-Man number 271, written by our buddy Tom DeFalco and pencils by Mr. Ron Friends. Yeah, I'm, I tell you, though, I'm, uh, it's, been a, it's been a wild month since uh, we re- recorded the, the uh, November uh, <laughs> Spider History. So much has happened in my life. I mean, I... It's been all 30 seconds. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I got my first colonoscopy scheduled. Uh, just whoa, all kinds whoa. of things. Uh, anyway. We're one minute 30 in, and you're going there. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait till I come back in January and tell you how it went. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, remember, after after talk, I regret yeah. getting out of bed today. <laughs> George is a little under weather, I, so I, I, I'm, I'm doing that as a public service because I know that all my fellow panelists who are 50 and over, and all of the fans out there who are listening to this podcast who are 50 and over, will appreciate this advice. Are you doing uh, it as a public service, or are you just trying to service the public? <laughs> Be honest, Redinger. I'm just appealing to that vast middle-aged fan base that I know is out there. Uh, anyway, Amazing Spider-Man 271. Oh, did you set this up already, Brad? Yes, I did. It's got Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco. Oh, well, old man. You know, I'm an old man. Fit, you know. Uh, I guess. Uh, anyway, well, well, we all remember Crusher Hogan, don't we? I mean, you can't be a Spider-Man fan and not remember Crusher Hogan. Because, I remember uh, Crusher don't you mean Bonesaw McGraw? Or is that people? <laughs> Remember Crusher Mania? You are a goddamn monster. <laughs> yeah. I just figured that some people might be kind of who's going into the McGuire films might be a little confused about who. What's uh, What's Bonesaw's line in the first Toby movie? Bonesaw's ready. <laughs> and there's nowhere to go or something like that. Oh, I got a... you for three minutes. Three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Into a slim gym. No way he didn't say that. <laughs> they didn't talk about slim jims. <laughs> <Yeah. sighs> and see, I, I might be confused about you know who Crusher Hogan is, having if they've only experienced watching the film. He is a real. Well, they they wouldn't have been confused if you would have let me go through the rest of this paragraph uninterrupted. <laughs> oh, go ahead, all right. Sorry. Anyway, go ahead, Crusher Hogan, Amazing Fantasy number one fifteen. Peter Parker gets bitten by the spider, discovers he has superpowers, wants to test them out, but, ooh, you know, he doesn't want anybody... What if he fails? He doesn't want to be embarrassed, so I'll disguise myself. So he puts a scarf on his face and wears a white turtleneck and decides to go into the ring for to try to last three minutes with Crusher Hogan for $100. And, of course, the rest was his... And here is what I had written, and this was even fairly faithfully rendered in the first Spider-Man film with Tobey Maguire, except, of course, his opponent was called Bonesaw McGraw. But Mike decided to jump in ahead of time, and he just pissed all over that. Uh, 
Anyway. Way to go, still a nerd. Thank you. <laughs> I'm here all Anyway, <laughs> 30 years later. Or no, no, 20, 23 years. Don't wait a minute. This is 88, right? Uh, 26 it's, years. It's 85. 85. Yeah. Wait a minute, is this... December 1985. Oh, that's right, this is 85. Okay, so 23 years later. Crusher is a janitor in a boxing boxing gym, which trains young boxers, and he's telling this story to a young fighter. Well, the thing is, old Crusher is kind of padding his resume a little bit. Because in this version of the story, you know, it doesn't end where Spider-Man, you know, takes Crusher back down to the the ring and then collects $100 and, you know, takes off. No, he he and Crusher kind of get back together and Crusher said, you're a good kid, but, you know, uh, you've got a lot to learn uh, if you want to play in the big time. And Spider young Spider-Man says, well, Crusher, will you teach me? And then begins Crusher's tutelage of our young hero. He teaches him acrobatics and other skills, and then finally he gives him his first Spider-Man costume. And when the kid puts it on, Crusher was never so proud in his life. And so when the young fighter asks Crusher if he sees Spider-Man much anymore, Crush says, well, he's usually busy, but he never forgets his old trainer. Eh... Yeah, Crusher's Crusher's in for a little heartache. Uh, anyway, partially because it turns out that this gym is run by a thug known as Manslaughter. Oh, <laughs> that's actually a because good, the good. Oh, go ahead. No, because all the good names were taken. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> you know, Man Thing was taken, so he's Manslaughter. Yeah, Manslaughter, who is a big dude who. His claim to fame, besides his huge brass metal knuckles or whatever they're made of, is that he had he had his spine deadened and so he feels no pain anymore. Okay. Wow. Oh, that's convenient. Uh, that was uh, that was I guess a, not as convenient uh, as a spaceship landing next to your pond. Yeah. Right? I hope I hope it was <laughs> worth it. Well, this young, this young see most of the fighters in the gym, you know, pretty well know that Crusher is a, a, just a washed up wrestler who's now a janitor and who probably is making up a lot of stories about Spider-Man. But there's one young fighter, probably the best in the group, you know, who's got a lot of talent, who actually listens to Crusher's stories uh, admirably, you know, admiringly so, and and he and Crusher are friends. But this young man says, decides he's not going to renew his contract with the owners of the gym. Well, the owners of the gym are manslaughter and an evil old Asian woman called Madame Fang. Because when you're trying <laughs> to go for the whole stereotype, uh, you know, so anyway, so they're going to decide to teach this young fighter a lesson. And you know what that means. Well, Uh-oh. yeah, a crusher overhears this and he's worried about the kid because, you know, he likes the kid and he doesn't want to see him get hurt. And we find out that Crusher really does idolize Spider-Man. He really does. He's got posters of him in his shabby little apartment, and he wishes he really knew Spider-Man because Spidey would know what to do. Well, in uh, in a delightful little interlude where Spider-Man tries to get back to the skylight in his apartment and can't because Randy, Candy, and Bambi are sunbathing on the roof, uh, yeah. as they are wont to do, he uh, decides to whip up some web bats and scare them off so he can sneak oh, into the apartment through the sky. <laughs> this was that, I thought he, did he do that multiple times or is it just this issue? I, I, I seem to recall he had a problem with him sunbathing on the roof multiple times. I don't yeah. know how quite he, he, you know... With the web bats, yeah. You know, wormed it, he wormed his way out of the situation or into the yeah. situation. Uh, but yeah. uh, <laughs> anyway, Randy Candy and Bambi obviously did not have a brain, but a single brain between the three of them. Uh, anyway, also going on in this story is Peter's got this solid gold notebook that he took from that office building that was all turned to go by the Beyonder in Secret Wars 2, which, of course, was the highly anticipated, vociferously demanded, award-winning sequel to the original Secret Wars, which, after 12 <laughs> issues of virtually nothing happening, we couldn't, we asked for more. Anyway. You know the, you know the highlight of Secret Wars 2? Spider-Man taught the Beyonder how to pee. <laughs> That and the, and the Beyonder look like look like Bert Convy. Bert Convy, <laughs> he did. He did. Draw. He, well, he had didn't he have Steve Rogers' body and then he changed the color to a brunette, not so he didn't look like. Steve. I don't know, but I mean, it was like 
hey, I've got a superhero's body. I've cloned myself a body from a superhero. Oh, now I need Burt Convy's hair. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I want to look like – I could look like anybody in the universe, but I'm just going to look like a 70s game show host. He has, he has, he has, he has omniscient supreme power. He is omnipotent and can do anything, and he chooses – he chooses to have Burt Convy's hair. For those young listeners out there, Google image search Bert Convy. He, he, I think he's been dead for at least a decade. He's been dead a very long time, and, and God love him. I don't want to take anything away from the con. But <laughs> wasn't he in Oh God Book 2? Uh, dude, everybody was in Oh God Book 2. <laughs> By the way, B-E-R-T-C-O-N-V-Y, Bert Convy. There you go. Uh, he was in Bucket of Blood. Uh, oh, uh, guess what, J.R.? He well, he was born in St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> just, no God, he's a Missouri boy, and he died in 1991. Yeah, Man. he he died he died pretty pretty young. Yeah, I think he had lung cancer or something. I remember yeah. him from Cannonball Run. Man, he was he was great in that, and he jumped out of the wow. he jumped out of the airplane on his motorcycle. He's I've got to be free. I've got to be me. And he, and he parachuted. No, he had, he had a brain tumor. It looks like poor guy. Oh, that well, sucks. Fortunately, he got out of Missouri, so he didn't have to vote for Mel Carnahan or Senator uh. Aiken. <laughs> Even more asterisks that the editor needs to add on these. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Oh, okay. Back to Spider. Amazing. That's experiment. Missouri putting the ass back in asterisk. Oh. <laughs> well, here's another subplot. All right, going on this issue, Nathan Lebinsky, who's Aunt May's current squeeze, owes some goombas some money for some gambling debts. And so they call him and, you know, tell him to meet them to settle the matter. Well, and of course, you know, when you're an old man and you're in a wheelchair, probably the best thing you could do for your health is to go out and meet, meet a bunch of thugs in an alley. Because uh, <laughs> you know that, you know, something good has got to come out of that. Anyway, but Aunt May overhears this conversation, at least Nathan's, Nathan's side of the call, and she goes. To, she asks Peter to follow him and keep an eye on him. Well, Peter changes to Spider-Man and starts following Nathan. And around the same time, Manslaughter and Madame Fang's goons come to teach Bobby the, the fighter a lesson. And old Crusher decides to help the kid out. But uh, this isn't going to go too well for old Crusher. And then Spider-Man hears the gunshots coming from the gym. So he stops following Nathan. He goes to the gym, and he takes out Manslaughter and all the goons. But not Madame Fang. I guess Madame Fang lives to fight another day. Anyway, so Bobby thanks Spider-Man and says it's an honor to meet him. And Crusher told him so much about him and all the stories about how they first met. And Crusher trained him and gave him his first costume. And Spidey's thinking, what the f*** is this? But then he thinks, ah, what the hell, and says, yeah, I learned a lot from old Crusher. And, uh, well, old Crusher starts tearing up, and all the other fighters there at the gym that previously thought he was just no putts that pushed him mop says, whoa, you really didn't know Spider-Man, man, you're cool. And so everything's all well that end well, right? Well, not so yeah. fast, boys and girls. We forgot about the old dude in the wheelchair. And, oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as a result of Spider-Man going to help old Crusher and stop not following Nathan, Nathan gets beat up, which it's kind of hard to believe that an old man in a wheelchair wouldn't be able to hold his own against three uh, uh, thugs. <laughs> there it is. You know, it's This comics. is the Marvel Universe, you know? It's uh. comics. you got to believe it, you know? Anyway, so Peter, you know, happens to be visiting Aunt May, and then she tells him what happened and says, I told you to look out for him. And you said you would, but you did it just, you said that just a humorous, silly old woman. You have your own life to lead, and the fears of a silly old woman just don't play a very important part of your life. And another shipload of guilt lands at the dock. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter says, oh, I, oh, that's great. And Peter says, oh, I should have saved Nathan, but I had to save Crusher. Oh, is this the price I always have to pay for being Spider-Man? No, Peter, it's the price you have to pay for not having any goddamn balls and telling your aunt that you're Spider-Man. God, this, I mean, this is the most gutless superhero in the universe. You know, he can't tell his girlfriend he's Spider-Man, you know, and he can't tell his mom, essentially, his mom, he's Spider-Man. So he would rather them think that he's a coward, an idiot, a buffoon, a loser, you know. Then tell him he's Spider-Man. 
I don't I get it. I've never gotten it. But anyway, <laughs> I guess that makes Marvel much smarter than me because they obviously get it. So, You know, I, I didn't ask you on the previous ones. What would you give a grade for this one? This one? Yeah, 271. Oh, you know, I would probably give it a B minus. I mean, other than, okay. you know, besides some of the fun we have with it, I mean, it's a cute, it's a one part story written yeah. by our old friend Tom DeFalco, who's fairly consistent. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just a nice, I mean, really, it, it, it is, it's, it's a little bit of continuity porn, but it, it is, it, it revisits somebody we hadn't seen in almost 30 years. Can and we not tonight, use Tom DeFalco's name in porn in the same sentence? <laughs> <laughs> that Remind me on the next Spider History we do. I like. I, I need to ask you a grade on these. Okay. Right. Because we we do a lot of sarcasm, but in the long run, you like this one. In the context, yeah. I mean, again, yeah. you know, it, not yeah. to make not to make it a, a classic or anything, but it's uh, right. you know, it, it's a short. It does now. It's a story. It does not live. It's welcome. You know, doesn't right. doesn't right. try to be more than it is. Uh, and it's you know kind of a nice little sweet revisitation with a, with an old character. Now, uh, JR, a question I have: Do we ever see Crusher Hogan again after the story? I don't think we do. Not that I recall. Which again <clears throat> yeah. does not mean I'm, I'm sure that somebody can Google him or Wikipedia him and find out that he was actually turned into some kind of uh, uh, super villain or something that went to fight some kind of Infinity Gauntlet Gym War or something. So. <laughs> We've got two more issues that came out here. No, 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 you don't want to leave right now, Brad. Why, what's wrong? Well, no, because you want to go, you want to go, you want to take your issue of two Amazing Spider-Man number 271, kind of smell the old rotting pulp, and you want to open it, <laughs> you want to open it to the middle in the two-page spread. Which what's in the two-page spread? The two-page, oh, come on. The two-page spread is advertising, a big advertisement for NBC's Saturday morning cartoon oh, lineup. Oh, nice. Which nice. features amazing Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And, you know, they're in they're, they're in NBC's secret lair underground, all these cartoon characters. And Spider-Man's talking to Mr. T and says, careful, T, we want to surprise the other guys, and you never know who may be reading this comic. And then Spider-Man, <laughs> the little blue guy's no fool. This year, we're cool, even more than. And then the, then we get the, the, the Smurfs start talking, you know, because the Smurfs are on. And then we meet the Gummy Bears. And then we meet oh, Punky man. Brewster because there's a Punky Brewster cartoon. You oh, know, wow, that was awful. That. I remember that. I remember watching that, actually, yes. Remember remember what her little Care Bear friend was called? Glomer, I think. It wasn't re- oh, I forgot. I tried oh, to blank Glomer. it out mine. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, Alvin and the Chipmunks are there hanging out. Oh, yeah. you know, Alvin, and- Simon, Theo. And I and Iceman is talking to Firestar, and Iceman says, "You know, with the Saturday morning plans that we have under wraps, we're going to be hotter than ever." And then Firestar says, "That's easy for you to say. You're melting all over me." Saturday morning dialogue at its best. I uh, I always looked forward to that yearly ad in the middle of the comics telling me what was coming on Saturday morning cartoons. Uh, yeah, you were looking like a regular thing so seventy days. Looking forward to it so much that you know you didn't even remember it was in this issue. <laughs> I don't know specifics. Oh, can I move on to web now? <laughs> yes, you can because yeah, we don't need to talk about the snorks. Snorks, the, the Smurfs of the sea. Yes. There were the there were uh, the Smurfs web, and then there were the snorks. Yeah, Web of Spider-Man number nine ah. uh, also came out in December of 1985, written by David Michelini and pencils by Jeff Isherwood. Tell me what happens here, Jr. I, uh, I tell you, this is one of those. You know, occasionally when you read a story the first time and you think it's pretty cool and pretty neat, and you know, and it's interesting. And then, you know, when years later, when you're doing a podcast with a <laughs> bunch of guys and you reread it and you say, I don't think this was as good as I remembered. Uh, well, anyway, <laughs> Web of Spider-Man, second part of a two-part tale. This is the Smith Smithville Thunderbolt story. And we have to go back to the year 1954 when Ike was president. And uh, let's see here. And, uh, yeah, I can't remember anything else that happened in the 50s. So believe it or not, I was not born yet. Uh, anyway, in 1954, a meteor crashes in the small town of Smithville, Pennsylvania. And it gives uh, humble bank teller superpowers. So he literally finds a pair of colored long johns and a mask and becomes a superhero fighting crime, calling himself the Smithville Thunderbolt. 
Well, we go to now we're in the present day, which in 1985 was the present day. It was the present day. But 29 years later, I guess 1985 is no longer the present day. But anyway, (laughs) Joe Robertson sends Peter Parker to Smithville to get pictures for a Sunday supplement story that he's going What's that? Because Web of Spider-Man is where Peter travels around the world. And his first stop on this world tour is Smithville, Pennsylvania. There you go. And uh, so he's going to, Peter's going to get pictures for Joe's Sunday supplement about the Smithville Thunderbolt. Well, when Peter gets there, just so coincidentally, the Thunderbolt happens to save some kids from a fire. And Spider-Man, Peter says, oh, boy, this is the guy I'm supposed to get a story on. Here, let me throw a spider tracer. Well, no, I forget. Actually, there's this big hillbilly who comes and starts fighting Spider-Man. But then he realizes that Spider-Man is not the guy he was looking for. And so the hillbilly walks away. And then, and that's about the time that Spider-Man throws a tracer on the Smithville Thunderbolt to follow him. So the hillbilly will come back, by the way. Anyway, this is like the second hillbilly in Web Spider-Man, and then there a hillbilly later in. No, in, later that on was in Spectacular Spider-Man when he was fighting Banjo. Oh, Banjo! Yeah, Banjo, Banjo and his his little brother Bugay, and yet another hillbilly. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, and it gets better. Uh, okay. <laughs> anyway, while while Peter is there in uh, Smithville, uh, Pennsylvania. He uh, he meets the uh, one woman in town that has all of her teeth, uh, and she's uh, <laughs> <laughs> and which which I'm saying some are just going to the toilet. <laughs> which actually I'm saying this in somewhat jest because uh, uh, I'm going to uh, you know have a little fun with apparently how Mister Michelinie views people who live in rural areas. Um, Anyway, her name is Roxanne, and she is a reporter. For, yeah. She's a, a reporter for the Smithville Birdliner newspaper, and uh, you know she <laughs> wow. finds out she finds out that Peter is a reporter from New York, or a photographer from New York, and uh, you know she says, "Oh yeah, I want to be in New York. I want to make the big time, and uh, that's why I'm stalking the Smithville Thunderbolt because it's going to be my ticket to the big time. Because you know, <laughs> for years the Smithville Thunderbolt used to fight crime, but Lately, he's not really been fighting crime. He's just been kind of showing up and, you know, when a disaster happens and helping out, and he's not really fighting crime. And there's a story there behind his changing what he's doing. And instead of anybody sitting there thinking, well, let's see, he's been the Smithville Thunderbolt for 30 years. He's probably gotten old, probably isn't up to fighting crime anymore. (laughs) But and he's not a legacy character, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, yeah, there's this big mystery about why this guy who was fighting crime for 30 years doesn't really seem to fight it anymore. But anyway, okay, <laughs> Peter picks up the signal of the spider tracer, and uh, but, and Roxanne follows him. Now, he changes his spidey and temporarily, lo- temporarily loses her. So Spider-Man hones in on the tracer, which takes him to this modest little home where he meets some old dude named Fred Hopkins. Well... When he invites himself into this old man's home and starts rummaging through his belongings and his closet, he finds out that he's a Smithville Thunderbolt. Well, there you go. The Thunderbolt tells him what's been going on, and actually that he some time ago he started losing his powers, uh, but he realized he couldn't live without the uh, adulation of his adoring small town of Smithville, population 2,600 and something. And so he started going around faking little disasters, and, uh, you know, he didn't start a fire, but he threw a bunch of smoke bombs somewhere and made it seem like a building was on fire and that he saved kids, and everybody thinks he's a hero. Yay! So he's been doing all this fakery, you know, so that people still think he's a hero. Well, our nosy reporter who's been following Peter finds the Thunderbolt's house. And since it's the only house around, because after all, this is a rural community, and there's probably only, you know, one house and everything else are shacks, uh, that figures that's where Peter must have gone. So she mm-hmm. walks in, snaps a picture of the Smithville Thunderbolt without his mask on, and just at that moment, the big-ass hillbilly that we met earlier <laughs> breaks through the wall, declares that he's the Smithville Thunderbolt, and he's going to kill the old dude. To be continued. Which takes us to issue nine. And I know you're breathlessly anticipating waiting for issue number nine. Because what happened was that the meteor that crashed in Smithville actually was, it broke in two. The first piece Hmm. was found by Fred, but then the second was buried for 30 years. And it was found by a farmer named Ludlow Grimes, who lived a few miles 
from Smithville. And of course, this gives him superpowers. Okay, well, <clears throat> Ludlow is working out in the field. And this is 1985, folks. All right? Right. His wife rings the triangle and says, come and get it. Like, <laughs> like she's working on the chuck wagon. Because... Low house of the prairie style, yeah. Because that's how people in rural areas talk. You know, <laughs> that's how they call their husbands in from dinner or whatever. They ring the triangle and say, come and get it, get it you know. Okay. Well, he's, he hears, the, he, he, and then, you know, he says, oh, yeah, I'm hungry. So he goes home and greets his two kids who say, hi, Paul, because they've been watching <laughs> the reruns of the Andy Griffith show. You know, and no, that's how kids address their father in rural areas. Paul. Yeah. Paul. Yeah. Okay. 1985. All right. Okay. Pennsylvania is next to New York, by the way. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and now, uh, and I know somebody out there is going to say, "Well, Jr., I don't know if you realize it, but uh, Pennsylvania, particularly Lancaster, Pennsylvania, is home to a vast uh, uh, Amish community." And my response would be, first of all, we're not talking about the Amish here. All right. We're not talking. <laughs> we are talking about one guy's stereotypical generalization of people who live in rural areas. But anyway, so th- anyway, it turns out there's a fly in the house that's bothering Mama. Mama wishes she could get rid of that fly. And uh, Ludlow says, hey, should I take it out? And the kid says, yeah, Paul, mash him good. Well, first of all, first of all, anytime anyone ever says, hey, should I take it out? The answer is always Yes. <laughs> So what about well, the fly? The problem, is, <laughs> the problem is when he mashes the fly, Ludlow takes out half the wall because he's got no. superpowers. And Ma says, stay away from my boys, you monster. You ain't even human. Get out. Now, now, I don't – now, admittedly, my wife did say this to me the other day, but <laughs> – I don't know that necessarily everybody's wife tells them this, but I guess in 1985, in rural areas, that's how women talk to their men. This guy she's been married to, uh, has had two children with, uh, in one moment where he displays an extra amount of extraordinary strength, she doesn't consider the fact that maybe the house that they live in is a dump. (laughs) Yeah. And it could be, you know, and it could be barely being held together or the fact that the guy is, you know, looks like he's been taking, you know, has enough muscles. that looks like he's been taking more roids than Arnold Schwarzenegger did in the 70s. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's he's a monster. He ain't human. Get out. Uh, what an understanding wife. But probably, you know, she probably has a good reason because probably earlier he got upset with her and he started comparing her to a Batman villain. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, it all comes back around. And this was just the last straw for her. Oh, man. Okay, well, Spider-Man, you know, anyway, so getting back to where Ludlow burst into the Smithville Thunderbolts home, say he was going to kill him. Okay, we're back here now. Spidey fights Ludlow. Roxanne takes a bunch of pictures, and Fred runs away. The cops come, and Ludlow runs away. Okay, Peter tracks down Roxanne and tells her that Sting told him to tell her not to print the pictures uh, because they could ruin the Thunderbolts' life. And she says, you know, nah, she's going to do it. She's her, her, those pictures are her ticket to the big city. Anyway, Fred is getting desperate now that his secret is going to be out, plus the fact that he's been faking it lately, uh, which will make him a laughingstock. Okay, back to Ludlow who we find out that after his wife threw him out, uh, his local preacher declared him to be an agent of the devil, and the neighbors all came after him with pitchforks and torches, literally pitchforks and torches, and chased him out of town because he had demons. Because, of course, this is a rural area. Even in 19, and even in 1985 in a rural area, no one has TVs, radios, newspapers, uh, that would tell stories about, oh, what was going on in just the next state of New York, where there are <laughs> superheroes and people with superpowers and things like that. Because nobody, maybe you know. They thought, maybe they thought he was a mutant. Because that only happens to mutants, apparently, in the Marvel Universe. So. Because everybody can tell the difference between a genetically born, superpowered person and one who got theirs by accident. 
Absolutely. <laughs> so, okay, so now... 1985. I can tell you exactly what I was doing in 1985. I lived... In, I was in the fifth grade. In Joplin, Missouri. No. <laughs> oh, you were somewhere else? I was somewhere else in the state of Missouri. Well, just Damn. as bad. Uh, Damn. So, <laughs> so I was living in southern Indiana in 1985, in a town, actually, that was not much bigger than Smithville. And my old man had a friggin' satellite dish in the backyard. I mean, come on. <laughs> that was almost starting to sound like that song, you know, Patches. Oh, you know, until you got to the uh, to the to the satellite Patches, dish. I'm depending on, on your son. son. <laughs> Pull the family through. through. My son, it's all left up to, up you. to you. I said, Patches. I know the Jerry Reed version. <laughs> That's hysterical. Go ahead, Jerry. Anyway, so, it, again, you know, this is like, uh, yeah, it's like, the thing is, I went back to see where Miss Michelini was, was from because I figured he was going to be some typical New Yorker and this, you know, who never got out of the state and figured this is what the idea of people was who, you know, who lived in rural areas. But he was born in Nashville. But, you know, I mean. <laughs> Wow, that doesn't <laughs> it's go like, along with anything. It's like, you know, it's like, well, I, I don't know. Did he ever get out and, you know, and see how, you know. Oh, no. Anyway, so anyway, well, Ludlow's gone nuts because he's a big-ass hillbilly with superpowers. Um, and so, you know, and since everybody's chasing him out of town and they're comparing him with Linda Blair and everything like that, you know, and so he's kind of lost his mind. And he finds out that there's somebody in Smithville who has superpowers just like him, but that, that guy is a hero. Which, of course, tells Ludlow that now he has to go to Smithville and kill this guy. Okay, so Roxanne is going to drive to another town to get her pictures printed in the paper because the paper, you know, because Smithville is so small, the paper doesn't have its own printing presses. Which probably in 1985, that probably is true. Probably a lot of papers didn't have it and they shipped out somewhere else. But anyway, so she's driving in her van, you know, and a tree. there's a tree on the road blocking her way. And then boulders start falling down the cliff, and the Thunderbolt saves her. But, whoops, it turns out it was all fake. The Thunderbolt had cut the tree down. The rocks were ma- the boulders were made of paper mache. The Thunderbolt was just trying to make it look like he'd saved her so she wouldn't print the pictures. Wah, wah. But then Ludlow shows up to kill the Thunderbolt, uh, who actually then legitimately saves Roxanne during the altercation. And once Ludlow sees that the Thunderbolt is just a scared old man, he stops being mad at him and wanting to kill him. <laughs> oh, boy. Wow. Yeah, I know. Next day, wah, Shield, wah. Next day Shield comes to pick up Ludlow, saying ah. that he can be a big help to his country if they'll let him conduct all sorts of tests on him and find out how he got his superpowers. So. Even though he tried to kill his old man, he say so we go. He can he now works for the government, basically. Yeah. yeah. What, what would you give the, the well, two we're issues not, we're for great? Well, well, we haven't got to the heartbreaking end yet. Oh, I thought we did. No, 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 no. We're we're close. Yeah. But anyway, Roxanne's print, pictures are printed, and as a result, the Thunderbolt is outed, and so the Thunderbolt kills himself, blows his brains out in his home, and Roxanne, oh. being the caring person she is, snaps a picture of the Thunderbolt's body. The end. Wow, that went dark. Wow. Yeah. That did go dark. Well, like I said, great, sir. When I read I, I have to give this like a C minus. When I okay. when I read this a few years ago, like I said, I thought, oh, it's a pretty interesting story. It's kinda of got a sad end. It's you know, it's you know what happened if there, what would happen if would happen to a small town community superhero, blah, blah, blah. And after reading it again, I, this is stupid. This is absolutely, <laughs> absolutely a good idea, a good a, a good idea, but then lost a bunch of stereotypical cliches, you know. So we have a B and a C. C. Now I imagine we're going to go to another A. I think this is one go to the it. most classic Spider-Man stories of all time. Spectacular Spider-Man number one hundred and nine. We're in the middle of the Sin Eater. That's right. That's right. Written well, by Peter David and Rich Buckler on pencils. Yes, indeed. And here, let me uh, <clears throat> let me take a, a drink here. Okay. Oh, what are we doing? <laughs> there we oh go. Oh my God! Oh. Jesus! God! See, if I ever need to edit, it's right there. No, no, no. You see, when you get past fifty, this stuff becomes cute and endearing. Now, <laughs> no. you guys. 
If you guys had done it, it just would have been gross. But uh, I can do all kinds of things because I'm a cute old man. Anyway. Uh, and they'll leave iTunes reviews. He's such a cute old man. We love him. You guys are all so negative. <laughs> I know, right? All the iTunes reviews are always like, yeah. you know, George sucks, but hey, that JR is on to something. <laughs> that JR is right. freaking gold, yeah. That's right. We got the greatest fans in the world, don't we? Um, <laughs> Anyway, anyway, a um, little bit of background here, because um, Gene DeWolf was a good supporting character, and uh, who, like other supporting characters that has been killed off in Spider-Man over the years, she's never really been adequately replaced. Um, I think I think Spider-Man needs sort of an ally on the police force, uh, and right now he doesn't have one. Occasionally, someone tries to come up with one. JMS tried to come up with one, and Slot actually sort of came up with one, but then he turned her into the Wraith and ran her off. Well, he uh, but anyway, came so up with two. Goes with Carly oh, yeah? Cooper. With Carly Cooper, technically that well, was. Well, she don't of... count. Oh, okay, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is, well, yeah, that, that is kind of strange because she started out as a forensic scientist. scientist. Kind of... Well, technically, she was working in the morgue, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then she morphed into a cop because mm-hmm. all people who work in the morgue, morgue pack heat. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, well, Gene was introduced um, actually back in the 1970s in Marvel Team Up number 48 by Bill Mantlo, and she was used sporadically, uh, becoming something of a semi-regular during Roger Stern's runs on both Spectacular and Amazing. And she was also used in Spectacular again when Bill Mantlo returned to the title. Uh, she started out kind of a cliched character because, you know, this was the 1970s, and uh, comic book writers then and now didn't have much experience with women at all. Uh, and uh, this, the, the, again, this was the 70s, so women were just getting into the workforce. And uh, so you knew that a woman cop had to be a tough, ball-busting, uh, chain-smoking, chain beret-wearing, you know. Oh, my. Person, because that's what Gene DeWolf was. I mean, it was she. She was really out of central's casting for a, a female cop. You know, from that time period, whether or not she's, she's a little bit cagney, a little bit lazy. Exactly. Whether or not any any woman cop during that area really acted like that, <laughs> as Gene did. Uh, but anyway, she as as the years passed by, I guess, and Mantlo started getting a clue, and she softened up a little bit. Um, he did add the little hitch that the good captain was starting to crush on Spider-Man. But she was keeping it to herself. Not too bad of a subplot, actually. You kind of wondered where it might lead. If only I could see his eyes. (laughs) Brad, let it go. (laughs) Don't don't quote Frozen. (laughs) I didn't realize I was, but okay. (laughs) Well, it ultimately did not lead anywhere. Because when Peter David came under the title of Spectacular Spider-Man, he got one of those shake-things-up directives from Marvel. You know, rather than saying, you know, you're a fairly talented writer, and uh, we trust you to write stories, and, you know, good stories, and, you know, character-driven. No, we want you to shake things up, which is, you know, code for kill somebody off. So, uh... (laughs) They still give that mandate. Yep. So, you know, (laughs) things haven't changed. So... Peter chose uh, Captain DeWolf. So anyway, in issue number 107, uh, Captain DeWolf is discovered to have been brutally murdered because she has a cannon-sized hole in her chest from a shotgun blast close up. Uh, so anyway, so Spider-Man you know, finds out that, that Gene was murdered, and he asks who the detective on the case is. Well, and he's told that detecti- the detective is named Stan Carter. And this is where your spidey radar sense should start to go off because want want significant new character guest starring. Yeah. Sort of like when you're sitting there watching Turner and Hooch, you know, in a theater. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere Craig T. Nelson shows up as the uh, the police <laughs> And it's like, whoa, significant actor. He's That's gotta awesome. be the bad guy. You know, you know, he he just Craig T. Nelson just doesn't walk out on the street and talk to Tom Hanks about bicycle thefts without this leading somewhere. <laughs> so it's like so Stan I said, oh, okay, my bad you know, something's the the alert's going off. And so, you know, they, they, they start talking. Um and then uh, you know 
Carter says, well, you know, it's really it's not you costume nuts that I'm worried about because everybody knows you're nuts. You know, what you got to worry about is the quiet and obvious nuts. Those are the ones you have to watch. Okay, you know, ding, 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 you know. <laughs> anyway, yeah. there's there's an, another plot subplot going on because uh, at this time Aunt May has turned her old the old Forest House home Forest Hills homestead into a boarding house for similarly senile people, and uh, one of these old guys, you know, who goes into town to collect a social security check gets beat up by a bunch of muggers. Well, Spidey captures the muggers, but you know. At their bail hearing, you know, Peter's there with Aunt May and, you know, but their their attorney who's doing pro bono work is Matt Murdock. And Uh-oh. because they're first offenders and they're indigent, he gets bail waived. And so they <laughs> walk free. Well, <clears throat> Peter is not very happy about that. And so he jumps on Murdock's case. And, of course... Murdoch recognizes the heartbeat. Mm. He knows it's Spider-Man. And then Aunt May decides to prominently name-check Peter. You know, just when he's starting to chew on Murdoch, Aunt May goes, Peter Parker! (laughs) (laughs) So, the comic book, the the long-time comic book reader in you doesn't go, okay, this is going to lead to something a little later. So anyway, at the end of issue 107, the killer comes after a judge while Murdoch is there and blows away the judge. And that's when we're introduced to the sin eater. So now you know that both uh, daredevil and Spider-Man are going to come after this guy. But so next issue, one Oh eight Spider-Man first encounters the sin eater who is talking like a religious lunatic and about how he takes out people who've sinned. Anyway, sin eater escapes cause he sprays the crowd with, you know, with his, his shotgun and Spider-Man sees Aunt May lying on the ground, worries that she's been hit. And so he goes to her aid and sin eater gets away. Well, then he go, but at about the time that you're saying, what the hell kind of name is sin eater? Why would you call yourself sin eater? That's stupid. Well, fortunately, Spider-Man goes to Stan Carter and Stan will explain it to you. Uh, he will explain to you that uh, he didn't just come up with that lame name on his own, that in primitive cultures, and Carter specifically re- references the Ozarks, uh, when someone died through... <laughs> Gosh, you are... <laughs> specifically? No, 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 no. It is in there. Like, like Prego, it is in there. Oh, God. Gosh. Have you ever been to Branson? Have you ever been to Branson, Jr.? Actually, yes, I have. I went there with my uh, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law rented a van, and me and my wife went with them to Branson. <laughs> how, how, and, how long and, ago? We saw we saw Ray Stevens. And oh, yeah. Saw, yeah, Did we you really? saw... How how many years ago? Because if you were in town and I was here, that would have been fun to meet you. Did it do uh, well, the, the Squirrel song? What, you, what, oh, you, what year was it? Oh, no, I wasn't living here then. This day the squirrel went berserk. Berserk. <laughs> <laughs> I know that one. <laughs> but I did. I really wanted to see Andy Williams in the Moon River Theater, but oh, my yeah. father-in-law nice didn't squirrel. want to go. My father-in-law, my father-in-law got mad because he had to pay $15 for Ray Stevens tickets, and we couldn't convince him to go anywhere else. Uh, <laughs> so, and, and we well, didn't get a... fairness, see- after you've seen Ray Stevens, what, I mean... Yeah, but see the thing is, we didn't. From there, man. But the Ray Stevens tickets weren't until like later in the week because Ray Stevens was so popular, he sold out every show, so we couldn't get in for days. So, like my father-in-law stewed over the price of those tickets for two days. Anyway, and we didn't get to see Shoji Tabuchi either. What yeah. about uh, Yakov Smirnov? Was he down there? No, he 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 took. Oh, I think he he took over actually Ray's theater yeah. when Stevens left. Right. Uh, but now. Now one of the most popular acts down there is Greg Brady from the Brady Bunch. I he has the seventies spectacular where he sings and he d- tells jokes and stuff. Is it like a that. variety show? It is a variety show. Yes. <laughs> anyway, we're and off topic. Here, okay. here, here, here we go. Now you guys, you know, who always accuse me of quote unquote making shit up. Here it goes. <clears throat> the spider. You know, <laughs> Carter asks, "Do you know what a sin eater is?" Spider Man can't say that I do. Carter, well, in some superstitious societies, like in the Ozarks, they leave their recently deceased laid out with fruits or edibles on their chest. What? Uh, and, 
And a man who comes, comes whose only job in life is to eat those fruits, which represent the sins of the deceased. Once Brad, he eats do them. You, Brad, do you eat the fruits? No, man. That's new to me. <laughs> that is new to me. Once he eats them, the deceased soul is cleansed, ready for heaven, courtesy of the sin eater. Okay. Peter, David, what are you smoking? <sighs> it goes back a little bit. So we also find out that Carter is a former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. Uh, you know, again, the bells go off. And we also find out that his partner was killed in the line of duty six months ago. Are you writing all of this down? Because this is all going to be relevant. So at this time, Spider-Man goes to Jean's apartment hoping his spider sense will, will get triggered by some kind of clue. And that's where he comes across her secret stash of porn pictures of him. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, she does. She's she's got a collection. Of, he does have his clothes on though. Uh, but uh, she has kept a. You know, he finds out that she liked him, and uh, and it was kind of like, you know, he's and he's pretty bummed out about that for obvious reasons. It's like you know, he always thought he always thought that she, he was nothing more than a big pain in the ass to her, uh, and it turned out that he had a cru- she had a crush on him, and she never told him. So anyway, at the end of issue one hundred eight, a priest gets blown away by the sin eater. Uh, because the priest is against capital punishment, and, you know, the judge was soft on criminals, and, you know, so that's why the senior year is killing these guys. Anyway, in issue 108, there's actually a neat little Easter egg, uh, because there is a guy who is reading a newspaper with a headline about a vigilante striking again. Of course, the newspaper reader is none other than Charles Bronson, uh, who made the, who made the Death Wish movies. A couple which are actually pretty good, and the others were garbage, but anyway. And that brings us to issue 109. Whereas we find out that J. Jonah Jameson's leaving town for a conference, leaving his wife Marla alone. And yes, the late Marla Madison, everybody bow your head. Uh, Moment of silence. Spider Slayer creator. Yep. (laughs) She calls up Betty Brant because at this time Ned is alive, and Ned and Betty are married. And Ned is going with J. Jonah Jameson to the conference. Uh, that has got to be a lot of fun for Ned, uh, going with Jonah to this conference. So Marla calls up Betty and says, since we're going to be a couple of old, old women alone by ourselves, why don't you come and stay here at the house with me? Well, this is obviously before Ned is revealed to be the Hobgoblin. And this is obviously before Ned is revealed to actually have been a Hobgoblin doppelganger for Roderick Kingsley, but that would be getting ahead of ourselves. So, Spider-Man visits the Kingpin to see if the Kingpin knows everything. And here we get another Easter egg. The Kingpin is dictating a letter to a CB... Wait a minute, there's a note here. Does it say, J.R., hurry it up? Let me check here. No, no. it doesn't. Uh-oh. <laughs> Brad, oh, oh I, ooh, I'm, I'm, sending, I'm sending girls messages. Okay, anyway. <laughs> the, uh, the Kingpin is dictating a letter to a CB Kalish, who wants to be an assassin for the Kingpin. Well, the Kingpin says, I'm an honest businessman and I don't hire assassins. And by the way, when you dressed up as Madam Fate and took out two of my men, I took that rather personally. So, he, in other words, Ms. Kalish is not going to be offered a job as an assassin by the Kingpin. Well, C.B. Kalish is actually Carol, K- Carol Kalish, who from 1981 to 1991 was the vice president of Newmark Product Development and the direct sales manager at Marvel. She is a fairly notable figure in comics history, depending on who you talk to. Supposedly, she was a great aide to the direct market because she initiated Mar- apparently a lot of comic. This was the like the early eighties was the early days of the direct market, and apparently a lot of these guys who own comic book stores didn't even have cash registers, and you know they're running everything kind of on the on 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 a shoestring. So, you know, she went around and she got Marvel to start buying these guys some up-to-date equipment and trying to modernize them. Uh, she also hired an assistant sometime here during the 80s, an assistant who wanted to get into the comic book business, but this was his best avenue of doing it at the time, and so he was hired as her assistant. His name, of course, was Peter David. Um uh, and so she later died of, uh, she also, oh, wait a minute, she, she's also credited for discovering Alex Ross, which I didn't get the backstory on that, I just saw it. And she was also a childhood friend of Paul Dini. 
she and Peter remained friends until she died at the age of 36 from an aneurysm, and he later named one of his daughters after her, after she had died. Yeah. Apparently, she was a very divisive personality uh, because there were some rather nasty things written about her as she was uh, after she died. But anyway, little Easter egg and insight into comic book history there. So anyway, cool. after that, uh, Peter decides to visit the Daily Bugle as the scene eater burst in looking for J. Jonah Jameson. Fortunately, as this is a newsroom, a modern newsroom, they still have typewriters. And <laughs> no, they did in 1985, yeah. yeah. Well, I, you, you, you still use typewriters in your newsroom today, right, Brett? The typewriters in my newsroom were kicked out in 1999. Wow. Do you, do you believe that? that actually and I, I started working in 2000, so it, it took a long time for them to upgrade. Wow. Well, you know, that's funny because even in my job, we got rid of our typewriters about 1986 and 1987. So, But then again, I forgot you work in Missouri. Uh, anyway, so our spider, Peter Parker, who's visiting, pulls out a roller out of a typewriter, throws it at the scene eater, knocks him out cold. And we find out that the scene eater is this loser by the name of Amel Gregg, who became the scene eater because voices told him to. <laughs> well, Daredevil, obviously, you know, has an interest in the Scene Eater case and walks in listening to, and uh, on the interrogation. And once he, once he hears Emil Gregg's heartbeat, he knows he's not the Scene Eater. So he and Spider-Man go to uh, Gregg's apartment and just happen to find out that the guy who lives next door is Stan Carter. There you go. Yep, yep. And uh, because... And, uh, when they go into Stan, because the apartment, because there's a door between apartments, and I guess Greg broke into it, got into Carter's closet because that's where the scene eater stuff is. They find Carter's closet, they find the scene eater gear and guns, and they find a tape recorder. So Daredevil hypothesizes that as Carter was dictating all his wicked, weird, evil plans into the tape recorder, this you know. Amel Gregg's bed was right on the other side of the wall, and this guy who was already a mental case to begin with heard all this and was just assimilating all this crazy talk, and that's why he thought he was the Sin Eater. Well, because this guy came into the bugle trying to kill Jonah, they now know that he picked up from Carter that Carter was going to kill Jonah. Well, Jonah's not there at the house. Betty is. Betty and Marla are. So Spider-Man tries to call Betty, uh, and uh, but the Sin Eater gets there first. And she picks up the phone, and she looks up, and there's a senior reporting his double-barrel shotgun at her. And the next-to-last panel is one of the greatest, a great cliffhanger. Yeah. (laughs) Because it is the chair that Betty was sitting in, just with a hole, just blasted in it by a shotgun, to be continued. Yeah. No doubt. And you had to wait a whole month to find out. To wait a whole, and you, you really didn't know for sure whether Betty might have really died because they just killed yeah. off one character. You never know. Uh, so anyway, but Spider- this one had a lot of lot of change for the character. Uh, Daredevil got to know who he was. You're, Betty Brant. You're, you're stomping all over the rest of this. So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, anyway, Drag issue number one. Goddamn monster. I guess so. <laughs> it's almost anticlimactic after that, actually, because uh, although it does feature a significant event in Spider-Man history, that was yeah. also undone by one yeah. more day. That's All right. right. So, yeah, I guess it was, wasn't it? <laughs> so anyway, so anyway, Spider-Man is really he's ready to take the scene eater apart. Basically, he says if he's hurt Betty or anybody or Marla, I'm going to kill him. And just that, we find out that Betty actually slid under the desk before the scene eater fired. But he's going to, he, she pisses him off, and he's going to shoot her anyway. And then Spidey breaks through, breaks through the window, and pretty well administers one of the most vicious yeah. beatings he's ever administered to anybody. And literally is going to beat him to death. But Daredevil, being a defender of limp-wristed, bleeding-heart liberalism everywhere, <laughs> uh, <laughs> keeps Spider-Man from killing him. And in one of the most inexplicable battle scenes ever, Spider-Man gets beaten by Daredevil in a fight. And I've said this before. I don't care if he's got radar sense, eyes in the back of his head, or uh, screws the black cat. There is no reason he should be able to last 10 seconds with Spider-Man. But anyway, you know, 
<sighs> so anyway, we find out, you know, Carter gets taken away. We find out that during his days at S.H.I.E.L.D., he was experimented on. They were trying to give him superpowers. And they gave, so they gave him a derivative of PCP. Now, you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing could go wrong. You give somebody a PCP derivative. Well, it drove him batty. And so once they, they thought that they got it out of his system, so they just decided to turn him loose and let him be a cop. You know? <laughs> uh, and uh, so anyway, but Jeez, then apparently... Like sounds like Ludlow from the last story is going in good hands there. It know. sounds like a lover boy song. Turn me loose. <laughs> turn me loose. <laughs> Do it my way. So then he so so his partner gets killed and that turned that sent him off the rails. He went crazy again, became the sin eater. So anyway, now he's in the process of being transferred from the precinct to Rikers Island when a mob led by Gene's stepdad, because you remember Gene DeWolf's real father, who we also saw in that Marvel team up story, hated her because she wasn't a boy. Okay, fine, you know. I guess, you know, whatever. I guess I hated my firstborn, too, because she wasn't a boy. But uh, I guess... But then again, it was it was the 70s. Uh, but anyway, he resented the fact she became a cop because women were good for nothing but staying home cooking and having babies, you know. So he hated her. Um, so anyway, he turned their brother into the wraith or whatever and went to jail and has never been seen again. So this is her stepdad. Her stepdad then leads the mob against... Uh, the police and the sin eater, and they're in the process of, um, you know, beating Carter up and administering a little vigilante justice. Spider-Man and Daredevil are there. And Daredevil says, oh, we've got to jump in and save him. And Spider-Man says, yeah, go ahead, asshole. I'm going to sit and watch. Uh, <laughs> That's a direct quote. <laughs> well, Daredevil gets into a situation which is a little more than he can handle because he's just overwhelmed by the mob, and he starts calling for help from Spider-Man. And Spider-Man basically is saying, la, 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 not hearing you, not listening, not listening. And uh, then all of a sudden, Daredevil yells out, Peter. And that snaps mm. Spider-Man to his senses, and he rescues Daredevil and Carter. And when the two of them talk together to settle up, uh, Daredevil admits that he is Matt Murdock. So, yeah. anyway... The story is not perfect, obviously. The bad guy is obvious, but this is one of those where Spidey gets pushed to his limits. It's, it's, a, it's a good crime story. Daredevil works good as a guest star in this issue. And you get to kind of, you highlight, you get to see the differences between the approaches of the two men. Yeah. And this story is also, it should not be forgotten, that this story is also the seed for one of the most squirrely, screwed-up villain motivations in the Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> and that is, who is this supervillain with the screwed-up motivation? Venom. Venom. Oh, that's right, Venom, yes. Because as a result of Eddie Brock taking Greg's confession as the Sin Eater yeah. and Spider-Man catching the real Sin Eater, <laughs> and Brock getting fired because guess what he did he pulled a Dan Rather on CBS News and didn't do his homework. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So wow. Dan Rather gets fired, but Eddie Brock is too good to be fired. So he blames Spider Man for his own bad editorial judgment. So this wow. is a historic issue. Not only is it a is, is one of the it is one of the best Spider Man stories ever, uh, yeah. but it is also one of the uh, Yes. Uh, it is also the genesis <laughs> we lost you. for the origin of Venom. I tell you. Yeah. You, you got me? Okay. Yeah, uh, there you oh, are. Yes, I get this in it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, get this. This it, it, it is, you know, like I said, it's got some faults, but the, the, the art really helps sell the story, too. I mean, I. Yeah. It's good art. Yeah. Oh, JR. He cut out. He was so impressed with the art, he went back to go look at it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> he had to do a double take on it. He had to go look at the art one more time. Oh, we just lost JR. Oh, man. <sighs> His wife pulled the plug. He said he's too loud. Yeah. JR. Right at the end. JR. You guys there? JR. There you are. There you are. Yeah, I, I saw it. It flashed on my screen. It said there's a problem with the call. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so they, at that time with the three monthly Spider-Man magazines, they tried to get each of them their identity, their own identity, and they tried to make spectacular kind of more of a darker crime-oriented 
you know, and they, they well, they referenced Hill Street Blues because at the end of every Spider-Man story during that time period in Spectacular, the last panel would actually be the credits uh, in white against the black background. Uh, it worked. I thought. I think Webb suffered, but I don't think you need three Spider-Man solo books. Well, it also kind of works too because the fact that that Spidey's wearing the black costume in the story, and it kind of yeah. and so it kind of fits with the with the whole atmosphere and mood of the thing too. True. So true. Because I don't think it would have worked with his wearing his good black good or a bad month, Jr. Uh, well, I would, you know, obviously uh, with this story, it was a pretty good month. Yeah. Uh, and uh, well, Amazing Two Seventy One is 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 worth going back in the back issue bin and finding. Um, Web, not so much. But, uh, again, it's, uh, it, you know, it's it, it's certainly not the worst that that era had to offer. So. Yeah.